0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Weiss, and I'm excited to welcome Christian apologist and author Abdu Murray on the show today. Abdu is the author of the book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World, as well as the Grand Central Question, Answering the Critical Concerns of the Major Worldviews, and is releasing a new book this fall titled, More Than a White Man's Religion. Abdu is also the co founder of the ministry Embrace the Truth, which is dedicated to offering the credibility of the Christian gospel to questioners of every stripe. Abdu, how are you?
1: Well, no, I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys to talk about this important topic. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, Abdu. And Abdu, your testimony is really inspiring. What, what people may not know about you is that you were a devout Muslim before becoming a Christian. So share with us, just in short, what that transition was like for you and why you have a heart for apologetics.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I can answer the second part uh, first, because apologetics factored so heavily Mm -hmm. into my coming to faith. Um, uh, And actually, it factored heavily into my resisting faith for the longest time in terms of faith in Christ. Uh, I was raised as a Muslim, um, a Shiite Muslim. There are two different, well, there's many different sects within Islam, but the two major divisions are the Shia and the uh, Sunni. And the Shi'a are a minority. Uh, Most of the beliefs are are exactly the same. There's some ritualistic differences and then Mm -hmm. some political differences and uh, a few possible um, differences in terms of um, uh, small theological changes. But Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, no, uh, it's exactly the same. But I took it seriously. I thought that Islam was the cat's whiskers, as it were, and I thought everyone should believe it. Um, And what I found was, because I grew up in an area that was largely Mm non-diverse, especially religiously, there were some Muslims and some Hindus, but not a whole lot. We were sort of My family and I, we were sort of the dollop of uh, olive oil in the pot of rice, as it were. So uh, we got asked uh, quite a bit about what we believed. And this offered me an opportunity to actually engage in conversations, spiritual conversations with people. And um, I'd often ask Christians why they believe what they believe. And most of their answers, this is the 80s and the 90s, you know. So uh, for the most part, uh, their answers were tradition. Yeah. um back then it was still fashionable to say you were a christian even mm-hmm. if you didn't really mean it now yeah. everyone's given up the pretense you know yeah so um uh i was engaging in conversations with christians about christianity but what i found objectionable about it wasn't the heart behind some of the christian ideas mm-hmm. and all this it was more of the head behind it you know yeah. it was does it make any real logical sense? Is it actually the kind of thing that people should believe? So I thought Christians were just really confused Tritheists. So any knowledge or idea of the Trinity was really sort of a, a weird idea that you wanted to believe in one God, but you have a hard time parsing out whether the, the God the God is the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, yeah. and there's this confused uh, attempt to make them all one.
2: Yeah.
1: That's what I thought when I was a Muslim. Um, and then, of course, the idea that Jesus could be God was: mm-hmm. how can you have the creator of the entire universe be trapped in a single human body
2: mm-hmm. that
1: eventually dies at the hands mm-hmm. of the very creatures that this that this being would have created? Mm-hmm. And so, I thought all of these ideas insulted God's greatness because, for the for, for a Muslim like me, the phrase "Allahu Akbar," you know, you hear this phrase all the time. Mm-hmm. That phrase literally means "God is greater." And so it's not a terrorist chant. It's actually a a proclamation of praise, Mm -hmm. a proclamation of worship, um, that God is truly greater. And because God is truly greater, he is the greatest possible being. And that means that every other conception Mm -hmm. of God, according to Muslims, fails in expressing God's ineffable greatness. Yeah. And so I thought the Trinity insulted God's greatness. I thought the incarnation insulted God's greatness. And then, of course, the cross, the idea that God himself would sacrifice and die, yeah. insulted God's greatness. Well, along the way, um, I began to see not only that there was a mounting evidence for the reliability of the Christian scriptures, uh, but there was also a mounting evidence for the historical reality of mm. Jesus's crucifixion which is important because Muslims deny that yeah. but also that Jesus rose from the dead mm. so I began to see the historical record developing I began to see the scientific record developing yeah. and as a Muslim I already believe that there is scientific evidence for God's existence but then I began to see the theological, any existential reasons mm-hmm. to be a Christian. Yeah. And uh, those were the ones that sort of sealed the deal as it were, yeah. because remember I was as a, as a Muslim looking for the God who is greater, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. Yeah. Um, and what I found was in the gospels, mm-hmm. the reality of this among many things, uh, including the Trinity and other things. But yeah. what I found remarkable was the cross itself and the incarnation of God in Christ didn't insult god's greatness they actually demonstrate it because if god is the greatest possible being Mm -hmm. then he would express the greatest possible ethic which is love in the greatest possible way now what is the greatest possible way to express love of course it's Mm self-sacrifice and we are capable of doing that yeah but if we could do that Ought not God, who is obviously infinitely greater than us, mm. be able to at least express love in this greatest possible of ways, yeah. which is self-sacrifice? And If that be the case, and God is unable or unwilling to do it, like mm. we are, then how could he possibly be the greatest possible being? Yeah. Yet we find that in the the gospel, not only is God mm. capable of self-sacrifice, but he actually does self-sacrifice. Yeah for the good of the people who hate him. So he's not just there to love those who love him back. He's there to transform those who hate him into those who love him. And the cross is the ultimate expression, the greatest possible being, expressing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible Mm -hmm. way, which is self-sacrifice. And when I read Romans chapter 5, verse 8 for the first time, I suddenly realized that everything I was hoping would be true Mm -hmm. in Islam was actually true In the gospel. And so that was an apologetics journey for me. It took nine years, uh, mind you. One is because of stubbornness, but two (laughs) is because there is always a price to pay. Totally. You know, whenever you change a worldview, whenever you're confronted with something that challenges the assumptions you've had or the convictions you've held for a long time, there's an identity shift there. And so it wasn't that the answers were hard yeah. to find. The answers were actually quite easy to find, but they were hard to embrace. Um, and so once I had realized that this truth was worth embracing, that's when I became a Christian. Yeah. And so apologetics factored into a strong uh, sense mm-hmm. uh, in which it factored into my conversion experience. It wasn't the whole caboodle, it wasn't yeah. everything, right. but it was a really, really big part of it. Definitely. And so what I've decided um, to do is dedicate my life to those who have the toughest intellectual questions as barriers to the heart issues. Yeah. So it's not just answering intellectual questions. Mm -hmm. Apologetics is not a question answering business. Apologetics is a person answering Mm -hmm. business because you clear the intellectual obstacles out of the way so that the, so that the the heart can be open to the cross itself and to Jesus himself and accept him. So that's the nutshell story about that.
0: Absolutely, Abdu, and I just appreciate you sharing your story. I think it's so inspiring for myself and so many of our listeners. We've grown up in, in the Christian United States where we have Christian families, and it wasn't really a challenge. Apologetics was a bridge that helped us connect our faith uh, more mm-hmm. intellectually, but for you, it's inspiring to see the cost uh, that you were willing to pay to follow Christ, and it's something that mm-hmm. we admire, um, and I know that really inspires us as well in our faith. So well, thank you. We appreciate you. you sharing. Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. And Abdu, I think that's a great bridge to what we're going to be answering today. And I'm especially excited for this question because it is one that I often receive from atheists and skeptics. I'm sure you do as well. And it's the question of, if God is so good, why does he allow evil to exist? So Abdu, what is about what is it about this question that makes it so popular among atheists and skeptics alike?
1: Well, it's actually popular amongst a lot of people, but I think for atheists and skeptics alike, <clears throat> it's because it does seem to mm-hmm. to hit on a couple of things. It's got an intellectual robustness to the to the, to the objection. Yeah. And let me make it a little harder, actually. It's not just that, why would a good God, God allow suffering mm-hmm. and evil to exist? Because baked into the idea of God in the question is, not only would a good God, why would a good God allow this, but yeah. why would an all-powerful God allow it as well Mm -hmm. because the objection strongly stated is if god is all good he would want the suffering to end Mm -hmm. and if he was all powerful he'd be able to make the suffering end so the suffering exists which means either he's not willing and therefore not good or he's not capable and Mm -hmm. therefore not powerful and so if he's not willing he's not of the christian god and if he's not powerful he's not the christian god and in fact maybe he doesn't even exist at all so the question's quite intellectually robust and it causes people to, 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 to be stymied a little bit
2: totally. in terms
1: of that, that sort of dilemma that's created there. Yeah. But the other part of it is that it plays on an existential reality that mm-hmm. all of us face. I don't think there's a person living on the face of the earth, no matter how strong their faith in Christ might be, or a faith in a different uh, uh, conception of God or in no God at all, who doesn't sit up at night wondering why does God allow if he exists All the things that are either the tremendous sufferings, Mm -hmm. whether it's the war in the Ukraine or it's tsunamis in the South Pacific or it's um, coronavirus or whatever it might be, why does he sit there and not do something about it? Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone wonders that, no matter how strong your faith actually is, especially when it becomes personal. Totally. And so I would say this the reason why this is for for the intellectual reasons, for the connectivity to to human, to human, the human plight reasons, but also because. There's a personal reason.
2: Absolutely. People
1: don't ask this question typically in a vacuum. It ceases to be academic yeah. when it starts to become incredibly personal because everyone's experienced some form yeah. of suffering, whether great or small, in this life. And so we look to the heavens, mm-hmm. we look to the, the within ourselves yeah. and ask the question, why?
2: Yeah.
1: The difference is this, is mm-hmm. that for the atheist or the skeptic, that question will always go unanswered yeah. other than, it's meaningless. Yeah. But here's the interesting part, Noah, when we ask why we're actually looking for a meaning, because yeah. a why is a meaning question. Yeah. And if the answer is there is no meaning, then the question why actually doesn't make any sense to actually ask. Okay. Uh, so yeah. if we're here by accident, if as Lawrence Krauss would say, we're completely irrelevant cosmically, then yeah. the question of suffering is only a question of how do we minimize suffering?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. doesn't
1: really give you meaning behind the suffering. And it's interesting uh, before I sort of tail off on this is that the question is often asked why 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 when they're suffering 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 no one ever asks why 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 when we're in a state of bliss. Yeah. Lottery winners never ask why god why. They never do that. Right. It's interesting it's interesting that suffering points us to deep existential and philosophical questions. It does. Um, but, but but pleasure almost never does. Yeah. To quote C.S. Lewis, you know, God speaks to us in our conscience and he whispers to us in our pleasure, mm-hmm. but he shouts to us in our pain. Yeah, it, is. it is his megaphone to rouse mm-hmm. a deaf world. I've never mm-hmm. seen more people ask the God question or mm-hmm. even email us and come to faith mm-hmm. um, than during the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Abdu, I think you just put it out there so well that this question is so important and there's so many tremendous reasons of why we should have a, an answer or a reason of why it matters. Um, and you gave the point too, the atheists and skeptics, the question doesn't even really make sense because it doesn't matter. Um, and that's an important thing to really process and chew on as well. And Abdu, I once heard you say in a Q&A on this subject that the problem of evil actually proves God's existence alone. So talk us through how the problem of evil proves God's existence.
1: Yeah, so um, just the, 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 the phraseology of the word, the problem of evil assumes that there is such a thing as objective evil, yeah. that certain things are evil or, or certain things we have a moral obligation to do. We have mm-hmm. objective moral values and yeah. duties. So um, we think it's objectively the case yeah. um, that owning people as property, whether it's in the antebellum South the North Atlantic slave trade, yeah. or it's in modern day slavery of sex trafficking. Yeah. That is wrong, objectively speaking. That yeah. is an evil thing, objectively. Now, what that means is that it is wrong, irrespective of human opinion. Mm-hmm. That's by definition what it means for them to be objective. Yeah. The world is a, is a sphere, is a ball, even if no human beings believed it. Yeah. It would still be true. That's what objectivity means. It right. is true regardless of people's assent or, or disagreement with it. Absolutely. Um, so I think we can all agree, essentially, uh, that even if there are people who believe that it's okay to own human beings or whatever, and certain people did not too yeah. long ago here in the United States. It yeah. was still wrong even when everyone believed it. Absolutely. So there are objective moral values. Yeah. Now, for them to be objective, they can't depend on human opinion.
2: Yeah.
1: But right. here's the problem. Morality is not the kind of thing that just floats and bobbles along you know uh, Plato tried to basically make the, con- the, the the statement that there were these forms that, that certain things exist in and of themselves. Yeah. Like goodness is just good. it just exists yeah. and justice exists out there and compassion exists out there mm. and we conform our behavior to those forms. yeah The problem is is that if goodness exists, It exists as an abstract concept. Mm -hmm. It's not rooted in any personhood. And so if it exists out there objectively, it Mm -hmm. violates its own standard because goodness is effete. It doesn't, goodness doesn't have any causative properties, which means that if goodness exists, that it violates itself because it doesn't act good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything. Justice can't be just. Fairness can't be fair. Compassion cannot be compassionate, but persons are compassionate. Yeah. Persons are good or evil. Mm-hmm. And so in order for there to be objective moral values yeah. like goodness, compassion, and mercy and fairness, yeah. they have to be rooted in an objective personhood. Yeah. You can't just float out there. And what does an objective personhood mean? What that means is it is a personhood. Mm-hmm that exists in and of itself and requires no explanation for its, for its own existence other than itself. Yeah. Well, an uncaused necessary personal being is exactly what God is. Absolutely. And so if God exists as an objective personal being in whom morality is seated, then the existence of our objections yeah. and our anger yeah. and our desire for resolution of evil mm-hmm. proves that moral values and duties exist yeah. and moral values and duties exist only if God exists. Yeah. And so the problem of evil doesn't disprove God. It actually proves yeah. that objective values have to be rooted in a person. Yeah. And yeah. that person has to be God because those things exist. He exists outside of human opinion. Absolutely. Um, so, um, and then, of course, you can prove that by other ways as well, through cosmological arguments and these yeah, kind of things. Absolutely. But um, I think if we if we assume objective moral values yeah. uh, by which we can judge something to be evil, then we assume that there is an objective moral value giver. In fact, the objective moral value giver doesn't just give those moral values to us. He is the very foundation for those things. Yeah. Otherwise, it's human opinion. Yeah. And those things will change later. Totally. So the problem of evil would shift. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't disprove God, and if he proves God. But what it does leave us is with the mystery of trying to understand why these things happen. Absolutely,
0: yeah, dude. I think it's so interesting to think about the reality that we all know that's true in some sense. I think we all can admit that what Adolf Hitler did in, in 1940s Germany, killing 6 million Jews, is objectively wrong. That cannot happen again. It should not happen again. And no matter what the opinion was of that situation, uh, that was wrong. And I find it interesting as well. I'm sure you know this. Um, but the Nuremberg Trials opened up a door to international law, um, essentially convicting the Nazi war criminals, um, not based on any law in their own country or any law that previously existed, but on just human rights. And I find that really interesting because it, it that's an objective law, um, and that proves itself mm-hmm. within that case, which was not a, a faith-based case in any way. Um, it was just convicting mm-hmm. those war criminals on on that account. So very interesting. Well, and that's
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, now we base things like Universal Declaration on Human Rights, yeah, and the European Declaration on Human Rights, yeah. and the Magna Carta, and uh, the Constitution of the United States, and the various laws, all of which at least pay some form of a lip service yeah. to the objective reality. Secular humanism does this, you know. Yeah. Secular humanism is the belief that human beings have inherent value, objective yeah. inherent value. Yeah. But they don't need the secular part. Is that we don't need God to justify that. The problem is, of course, is that you actually do yeah, you need do. God to justify that. Yeah, and I think that, um, uh, in other words, so secular humanism, I believe, smuggles in or borrows a, a, a an ethic from Christianity. Yeah. Um, yet also uses that to decry that Christianity is wrong.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to think about that, and the reality too that if objective law exists, you said it so well it does prove there has to be an objective moral law giver. And that just just Mm -hmm. is so profound and really processing for us to think about. So I appreciate you sharing that, Abdu. Yeah. And and Abdu, from the perspective you mentioned earlier, God's omniscience or all-encompassing knowledge of the past, present, and future. Help us to understand why an omniscient God would allow evil and suffering.
1: So this is interesting because... um oftentimes people have what it might be called the logical problem of evil, that yeah. uh, a good God who's all-powerful can't possibly exist in a world where evil exists because a good all-powerful God would stop it. Yeah. And so therefore there's a logical inconsistency or a contradiction in those two things. But the reality is among the many different answers to that question is, is that we as limited finite beings who don't know everything yeah. cannot possibly say that there is no, morally justifiable reason where God could create a world full of free free, free beings, beings who yeah. actually have free will, yeah. or a world like ours where plate tectonics work or volcanoes erupt or whatever, yeah. where suffering can't exist, um, uh, short of heaven and sort mm-hmm. of the sealing and the sanctification of all things yeah. once these things have taken place for a purpose. So in other words, we're not in a position with our limited knowledge of the past, present, and future. To actually determine whether a being who has infinite knowledge of the past, present, and the future could actually justify yeah. allowing these things to happen. Now, as a believer, I don't think that God, as a believer in Christ, I don't think that God actually causes evils and sufferings to exist, although right. he could allow them for his own good purposes. That's and yes, there are times when he does bring you know, plagues on Egypt and does yeah. the various things he does. Yeah. But are those evils? They are They are possibly sufferings. But he brings those judgments for morally sufficient reasons and he doesn't absolutely. just do that on non-israelites or non-christians he does it on christians and israelites as well because yeah. sometimes their actions require judgment as well god absolutely. is impartial in this
2: absolutely
1: but having said that uh, a friend asked me this question about how god could allow suffering and evil and all these kind of things and so the question becomes like this if uh, if god exists if the christian conception of god we're debating whether that god exists yeah. so we have to come and ask ourselves a question is the christian conception of god logically impossible to exist in a world full of evil well then you have to define what that conception of god actually is and so the christian conception of god is that god is the necessary being he he exists in and of himself he is the seat of all of existence um uh and all things emanate from him or are created by him though they are not the same as him yeah but if that's the case Then we'd also have to say, I think an Orthodox Mm -hmm. Christian view is that God not only knows everything in the past, all true things of the past, all true things of the present and all true things of the future. He also knows what would have happened, what some have called either middle knowledge or whatever it might be. So I think God knows counterfactuals, which means that God knows what you would have done if you had decided something different and what all of that would have happened. So I could have chosen not to be a guest on your show and I could have spent my afternoon very differently. Now, had that happened, there are probably a billion different possibilities that would have spawned another billion different possibilities. With my finite mind, I have no ability to know even one of those possibilities, let alone a billion different possibilities that would branch off into a billion more different possibilities. But if God is the kind of God Christians say, then God would be the kind of God who would know all of those possibilities. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we were to say that a God like that exists, could exist, then we would say that a god who knows all past present future and future possible events would be in a position to know that if he allowed certain suffering whether small or great to yeah. exist it could be for a greater possible purpose we are in no position to know whether in a billion years or in the next five minutes we have no ability to know that yeah. um, and therefore no ability to judge that and if that's the case and it's not logically possible Sorry, it's not logically impossible that such a God could exist in a world where suffering actually exists. And in fact, one could even say that even given the amount of suffering that exists, we are not in a position to know whether that amount of suffering is outweighed tremendously by the greater good Mm -hmm. that comes. That God, The God who is not only all-knowledgeable but also all-powerful could work through that suffering.
0: Absolutely. I think that is so profound, too, of not putting ourselves at the seat of God. I think about that yeah. when I think about this question, because who am I to say that what God did to the Egyptians in Exodus of, of the different plagues he brought about, How do, who am I to say that that's wrong? Uh, I wasn't yeah. alive, I wasn't there. I'm reading uh, the account that Moses gave, uh, the inspired scripture, and I think that is something I've had to learn as I process this question, is I am not God. Um, and like you said, yeah. he, he has that middle knowledge, he has that all-encompassing omniscience, and so trusting that is a part of faith. Um, as well as understanding that there is good involved in the sufferings we have. And I think that's a good transition for what we're going to talk about next, Abdu, is that it's interesting answering this question as a Christian, because God did allow Jesus to face tremendous suffering for the better good of his people. And so how does the cross help us understand the question of why God allows evil and suffering?
1: You know, Noah, a good friend of mine uh, and I were sitting across the table from each other talking about this whole problem of suffering. we went through the whole God could allow suffering because of his knowledge and all that. It was very academic then became very, very personal because yeah. he asked me the question about how God could allow someone very, very close to him yeah. to die when he was a kid. Yeah. And he had basically abandoned all faith in God at that point, although still struggled with the meaning of uh, it was his mother, meaning of his mother's yeah. death. Wow. Um, and of course, if there's no God as to quote Dawkins and, and, and others, if there is no God, then all these things, both the the, the fortune and the misfortune, are all meaningless. Yeah. And so his mother's death meant nothing. Yeah. But here's what here's what I, I I had to say to him on this. After he agreed that God could allow suffering for a greater possible good, yeah. and therefore it's not logically impossible for God to exist in a world of suffering. Basically, said you know other worldviews can offer you that answer to a degree, yeah. um, but it's theoretical. Uh, the cross is. An answer that is beyond theoretical, because what I could say that God could possibly allow suffering for a greater possible good. Okay, maybe.
2: Yeah.
1: But the Christian, and you put it so well, and even even in the transition here to this this issue, Noah, is that a matter of faith on this issue that God can work things through when there's suffering? Yeah. For the Christian, actually, is true faith. Yeah. It's not belief without good reason. Mm-hmm. See, I can believe that God can allow suffering to exist for a greater possible purpose because the cross tells me that God did allow suffering yeah. for the greatest possible purpose. Absolutely. His son, his only son, died on a cross in that act of the greatest mm-hmm. possible love yeah. being the being self-sacrifice for my sins. So if Jesus died on a cross, if he died and stayed dead, we would have no idea about whether or not he died in that suffering that he himself took on himself he's the second person of the trinity yeah. god the son yeah. obeying the will of god the father dies on a cross for my sake to pay a debt that i owe mm-hmm. that i cannot possibly pay without yeah. being separated from god but he who has no debts of his own to pay yeah. who's perfect pays them for me yeah. through unspeakable suffering and forsakenness
2: yeah
1: that is that he didn't deserve it yeah and so god allows that suffering the father suffers in sacrificing his son the yeah. son suffers in feeling the wrath of the father and so that suffering by god himself yeah. is proof that god can allow suffering for mm-hmm. a greatest possible good not a yeah. theoretical good but the salvation of the whole world yeah. how do i know it i know it because he didn't stay dead yeah. there is historical reason to believe great reason to believe that jesus died in conquering death. So all the pain he endured had a purpose, and that purpose was my salvation. So that is a uniquely, Mm -hmm. and I think fundamentally uniquely Christian point of view, is is. that God deals with suffering in actual history so that the suffering we go through in the present looks towards a suffering that won't exist in the future because of what God has done for us.
0: Yeah, Abdu, absolutely. I think you painted a really cool picture in talking about a lot earlier in the reality that If God was so great, he would also do sacrifice. He he would have the willingness to sacrifice. And how beautiful is it that our God sacrificed for the greatest good, as you mentioned, and the meaning and purpose behind that. And I think that is such a relieving, comforting, hopeful answer that only Christianity can provide, Abdu. And I think that's also a good transition here because you mentioned earlier other worldviews. I mean, atheists, skeptics, Hindus, uh, Muslims, so many different worldviews. What are just these different responses to this question from a few of these worldviews?
1: Well, if I were to take, let's take an atheistic framework, for example, and there's many different forms of atheism, as you know, um, but let's just take a sort of a basic uh, atheistic standpoint that there's nothing beyond this life. This life, whether it's merely physical or there's metaphysical or whatever realities to life, um, uh, still, this is it. When we're dead, that's it. The universe is grinding down to a heat death. if, If entropy, obtains no matter how many advances we make in uh, our science at some point the laws of physics dictate that the universe all the usable energy will be dissipated across the entire universe and it'll be one flat featureless disk and that'll happen billions of years from now but it will happen which means that everybody we've ever loved and cared for and and helped it'll all become nothing in the end Uh, but someone might say this life is still what we have and therefore, we have to address the problem of suffering so that we can fix it. Yeah, because there's no one out there to help us. We have to fix it. Yeah. Um, but that ultimately doesn't really give an answer, because at the end of the day, it's all going to die its own heat death anyway. Yeah. And so I think when you look at someone like um, Julian Baggini, who is a, uh, a, a philosopher and a very, very forthright uh, person who talked about the, the hopelessness and the despair of his yeah. own atheism yeah. he basically said you know there was this billboard that was circulating on on buses double-decker buses in the uk uh by the british humanist association uh that said there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life and Bagini points out something he says can you really tell parents who've lost a child to suicide after months of depression yeah. there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life can you really tell them that Because ultimately, atheism is about facing up to the reality that there are no second chances. There is nothing beyond this life. Some lives are short. Some lives are long. Ultimately, in the cosmic sense, they're all short. Mm -hmm. And so we have to face up to that. Um, There's something gloomy about that. There's something essentially defeatist about that. And I realize that there are plenty of atheists who want to say, no, 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 there's there's a hope there. Uh, I have a hard time seeing it. Totally. Um, when it comes to other worldviews, the pantheistic worldviews of Hinduism, Buddhism, and the like, you have similar issues, you have similar problems, don't you? Because those worldviews, Buddhism being non-theistic, um, specifically, in other words, that there is no God necessarily, but they don't really harp on that no God. Yeah. And and Hinduism is basically the idea that we are, uh, whether we have a self or not a self, depending on whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, we have karma. Yeah. And our karma is the accretion of that which is bad or good in previous lives. Many, many thousands of previous lives. And so any suffering we have in this life is based on what we've done to ourselves. And in some senses, that's consistent with Christianity, not the previous lives part, but what you reap, you will sow. But here's the issue, though. For the pantheist, suffering is an illusion, yeah. Or it's a, it's, it's, it's a state to be escaped from. Mm. So that's why the, the cycle of death and rebirth is you work off your karma through various acts, whether it's devotion or it's right thinking or whatever it is, the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold yeah. Path, or it's various levels of devotion, whether it's bhakti or, or it's uh, jan, janana or in yoga and all these things within mm. Hindu uh, ideas. You're supposed to work it out and work it off until you realize either your state of nothingness yeah. in Buddhism or you realize your divinity in in, in, in Hinduism. Wow. But the whole point is to escape suffering yeah. because suffering is an illusion. Here's the problem. The problem is that that very be- belief that suffering is an illusion, that is itself an illusion yeah. because Buddhists and Hindus all grieve the loss of people they've lost. Yeah. And if suffering is an illusion, that person in a sense was an illusion and the pain you feel is the signal of the value you had for that person. And if that is an illusion, then the value of that person is an illusion as well. But it is Christ himself who says you are so valuable that I'm willing to pay an infinite price to spend that eternity with you. And so Mm -hmm. the Christian faith doesn't say that suffering is an illusion. It says that suffering is so real that the God of reality Mm. is willing to experience it himself so that one day we won't have to yeah. and then you look to islam and suffering in islam is either a punishment for the bad deeds you've done um or it is a test of faith. Yeah. um and um ultimately it's up to us to deal with that wow. but god himself doesn't condescend to deal with it for us provides a heaven for us to go to but we have to work to get there yeah. um and so ultimately these these views I believe are sort of either mitigated temporal hopes that punctuate yeah. the dreariness, yeah, um, or they're elusive, yeah. And I don't mean elusive in terms of hard to find, I mean they're illusory, yeah. they're actually illusions. Uh, but Christian faith is Christian hope is real hope yeah. because it deals with suffering in this present world in actual history for a future eternity.
0: Mm-hmm. Abdul, I think what's so important about that question is the reality of. Where else are we going to go? And I think Mm -hmm. if we process that and and what you just really laid out for us is that Christianity provides the strongest response to suffering and the greatest hope in that. Um, And I think that is is truly a reality that we need to focus on um, and hone in on when we think about this question. What is the best Mm. answer? And it comes from Christianity. We can't get rid of suffering. That's a reality that we know in this world. And so how do we best answer the question? I think as you laid out, uh, Christianity is really the best response to that. And mm-hmm. after we can approach this question, I think you mentioned this earlier. It's so academically right, but there is a reality that suffering is so much more than an academic question. It is a spiritual and emotional question. So, what would you say to someone who is doubting God based upon a tragedy they have faced or a loss of a loved one in this life?
1: Good question, Noah. You know, and you hit on something so so well. Uh, it's a few moments ago. Is uh, where else are we going to go? There's only so many options to us in the middle of our doubt in the middle of our pain where else are we going to go and you know peter asked uh jesus asked peter that question is that um jesus provided blessings to a massive crowd of people in terms of in terms of food and then he told that those people you don't follow me because of the truth i offer but because basically the food i give you the actual material goods and then convicted of that they all walked away from him
2: yeah
1: and then he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Mm-hmm. Peter hit up something very important here. It's just only so many options. Yeah. And so for my friend who lost his mother to uh, me, myself, who have experienced my share of loss. Yeah. And to those who might be listening who have experienced or know someone who's experienced profound loss. Yeah. If there is no God, then you only have yourself to turn to. Yeah. And that's incredibly incredibly tough because you're going to have to forge some kind of temporal subjective concocted i believe ad hoc meaning to it all
2: yeah
1: um and then and we're all irrelevant cosmically speaking and so the death was irrelevant and so was the life by the way
2: yeah
1: um and that's a terrible place to have to to live yeah if we're in other worldviews, that person's value was illusion or that person's um, suffering was a test. Maybe you're going through a test. That doesn't seem right either, because we're sitting there going through this and saying, mm-hmm. "My goodness, that's all this is." Yeah. Um, biblically speaking, you know, Job goes through the sufferings he goes through. Yeah. At the end, you know, Job uh, is confronted after his many questions by God, and has some questions for Job. Yeah. And those questions are not. He says, "Brace yourself like a man." We often think that Job has to brace himself because God is basically saying. You don't know what you're talking about, and I'm going to put you in your place because I did all these things. Who are you to question me? And the reality is, I think something else is going on there, Mm -hmm. Noah. In addition to that, I think something tender is happening. I think that God is basically saying to Noah, I did this. I created this. I was there when this happened. You weren't there for these things. I did these things. You can trust me with your suffering because God himself suffers as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I would say is this, is that if, unless there's a God, and I would even say unless there's the God of the Bible, the person we lost and the suffering we're going through doesn't really mean a whole lot, except only to us and only for the moment we live. Mm -hmm. But if there's a God and we can know that he's good and that he values us in Mm -hmm. this way, is that he has allowed suffering to exist for the greatest possible good which is our salvation. But he uses suffering to show us our value because how do you know how valuable something is? You only know the value of something Mm -hmm. by what you're willing to pay for it. And so we have an infinite objective value. The loved one you've lost, the pain that you're suffering has an infinite value, objectively speaking, because the objective creator of all of the universe Mm -hmm. paid an infinite price to spend eternity with you. Yeah. All of us were bought with something and all of us know our infinite value based on the infinite price of what it meant for God to send his only son to die on a cross. Yeah. And if that doesn't prove that God loves you, then nothing will. Yeah. And everything else, I believe, pales by comparison. So we can find hope and some level of comfort. We'll still yeah. suffer. We'll yeah. still grieve. And there's no ending of that. Just because Jesus rose from the dead doesn't mean that we don't mourn. But yeah. Paul says we mourn not as the world mourns, like those who have no hope, but yeah. we mourn with the hope that absolutely. resurrection is real.
0: Absolutely, Abdu. And I think your point on value is just so encouraging and reminds us that there was such a high price for Jesus to pay uh, for us to be bought back to him and to spend eternity mm-hmm. with him. And I just, yeah, that imagery I think is so profound when considering this question. Um, and I appreciate you pointing that out, Abdu. It's a great, tremendous Yeah, answer. Absolutely. And Abdu, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure to have you on, and we appreciate all the work you're doing through your ministry, Embrace the Truth, and through apologetics.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Noah, and you give up the good work, too. Appreciate it. If you want to
0: get involved with Uncommon Sports Group and the mission that we are on to help you navigate the sport industry as followers of Christ, apply for our academy on our website at SG. Dot org. That's uncommon. SG.org. Be sure to catch new episodes of the Uncommon podcast every Thursday at midnight Eastern Time, as well as the full video episodes on our YouTube channel. Until next time, we pray that you will strive to be uncommon by glorifying the name of God in whatever you may do. See you next week.